As faculty of pharmacy and medical schools, I'm interested in what you see as the greatest workforce challenges and your views on the role graduate medical education plays in training the next generation of physicians. And the follow-up to that, you can answer both. How could additional residency slots, particularly in fields like pain management, addiction medicine, and addiction psychiatry, improve access to care for patients? We did a survey recently at the Mayo Clinic showing that 94% of patients would choose something other than opioids after surgery if they could. On this episode of Outside Counsel, I sit down with Dr. Andrew Kolodny, Medical Director of Opioid Policy Research at the Heller School and co-founder of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Together, we explore and unpack the possible remedies and solutions for the opioid crisis and investigate some of the current resources and programs available for people who are suffering from opioid addiction. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. Dr. Kolodny, good morning and welcome to Outside Counsel. Good morning, thank you for having me. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about what you do for a living. Sure, my name is Dr. Andrew Kolodny. I am the uh, medical director for the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative at Brandeis University, uh, where we study state interventions to address the opioid crisis. I also uh, teach about the opioid crisis at a School of Public Health in New York City. And I'm one of the founders of an organization called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, which is a group that for many years now has been advocating for more cautious prescribing of opioids and for better regulation of companies that manufacture and, and market opioids. So you're a medical director, you're also a medical doctor? Yes, I, I am, and I have experience treating opioid addiction. That was one of my uh, specialties. Tell us a bit about that, your experience just treating people suffering from opioid addiction. Sure, so um, my uh, medical training was in the field of psychiatry, but my main interest for a career was to work in, in public health. Uh, when I finished my medical training and I took a job in public health, because I was a psychiatrist, I was asked to work on health department issues in New York City related to drug overdose deaths. So that got me interested in addiction treatment uh, on a population level. Uh, that work, though, got me interested in doing clinical addiction treatment. So when I was working for New York City's health department, I started a clinical practice the patients who came to see me who needed help for opioid addiction, who needed treatment, they were actually from middle-class communities in New York City and in the suburbs, and they were overwhelmingly individuals who had become addicted to prescription opioids. And this was all very early in the 2000s and gave me an opportunity to recognize before some of my colleagues that we had a, an emerging serious problem involving prescription opioids, a new epidemic. How long ago in the United States was morphine brought to market as a drug legally available by prescription from a physician? It was a little over 200 years ago that a German chemist figured out how to make morphine from the opium sap 
And very shortly after that, morphine began to make its way into lots of, of products. Morphine itself was also um, widely prescribed. Uh, there were many doctors in the 1800s who had as the business model for their practice uh, giving out morphine injections where patients would come multiple times a day to get their morphine injection. The term quack doctor referred to some of these doctors who in, in many cases were themselves also addicted to, to morphine. The group that actually was most affected were middle-aged, middle-class women who were addicted to morphine products that were prescribed to them by, by doctors. So there was a, a significant need to, to better regulate these products and to and better regulate prescribing, which happens in the early 1900s. Are you saying we had an opioid addiction epidemic primarily to morphine as early as the 19th century in America? That, that's correct. By the mid-1800s, the problem was becoming severe enough that, um, that newspapers were beginning to write stories about uh, people dying of overdoses from, from morphine products. By the late 1800s, it was uh, to the level of, of an epidemic and health departments in the United States were, were now trying to better understand and, and address the problem. But yes, this um, America's first opioid addiction epidemic occurred in the late 1800s and it involved mostly morphine. Are you saying that we've had multiple opioid epidemics in America over the course of a couple hundred years and the modern epidemic is just us as a society allowing history to repeat itself? Yes, we really have seen history repeat itself. Even if you look at the marketing of heroin by the Bayer Corporation, um, what we saw was that Bayer promoted heroin as a safer alternative to morphine. As I mentioned, there was a lot of concern about a morphine epidemic at the time that heroin is being introduced. And heroin is first introduced in the late 1800s. And because they're introducing heroin when there's concern about morphine, they promoted the drug as a safer alternative to morphine. They pointed to studies that they said they performed in which uh, on mice, where they said that heroin was less likely to produce respiratory depression or overdose death than, than morphine. Um, of course, that's not true. Um, it's unclear whether or not they did the studies wrong or whether they just fabricated this as a, as a marketing scheme, but obviously heroin is not a safer alternative to morphine. We saw that happen with the introduction of OxyContin, where you had a new heroin-like uh, opioid that was packaged into an extended release. And because of the extended release formulation of the product, we had Purdue Pharma promote it as safer and less addictive or non-addictive, uh, when of course OxyContin was not a safer alternative to existing opioids that were on the market at the time. In fact, it was more dangerous than existing products that were on the market because it packed an enormous 
dose of oxycodone into what was said to be an extended release pill. And we saw, we've seen other opioid manufacturers do exactly the same thing, introduce new opioids as safer than existing opioids. So uh, as an example, Johnson and Johnson or Janssen, when it introduced uh, or when it began promoting its fentanyl patch called Duragesic for common chronic conditions, it had its sales force drug reps visit doctors and promote its fentanyl patch as safer or having a lower abuse potential than, than other opioids. We saw uh, Johnson & Johnson do that with Tramadol. We saw them do it with Nucinta, uh, uh, the, the last opioid that they put onto the market in the United States, where they also promoted Nucinta as being safer or having a lower abuse potential, even though it had performed studies that showed that Nucinta had a drug-like ability equivalent to hydromorphone, Dilaudid, which is often used as a heroin substitute. So over a hundred years ago, we had a heroin epidemic, heroin by prescription, that was driven by a false promotion that heroin was a non-addictive pain reliever in comparison to morphine. Then decades later, we have other prescription opioids from the same base molecule, right? That is in heroin, that is in morphine, but now we're talking about the drug Oxycontin or what have you. And it's the same deceptive marketing scheme. Well, this opioid pain reliever is not addictive, unlike previous generations that were. Why did the medical community and the regulatory agencies that deal with these issues buy this? That's a really good question. So a part of the way that the companies were able to get away with this was um, there was a, a fair amount of time uh, between the um, opioid addiction epidemic that we had in the late 1800s, which uh, spilled into the early 1900s, particularly when after heroin was uh, introduced. Um, the next opioid addiction epidemic we had uh, was right after World War II, and that involved black market heroin and, and inner city uh, communities and was unrelated to, uh, for the most part, to pharmaceutical marketing or physician prescribing. The current opioid addiction epidemic that we're dealing with today pretty much begins in the late 1990s and does involve pharmaceutical opioids and, and aggressive prescribing of these products. Dr. Kolodny, you trace the modern opioid epidemic uh, at its outset uh, to a period in the 1990s when opioid prescribing went way up, correct? Yes, I, I think that it's fair to say that when the prescribing began to increase rapidly, that's when the epidemic began. Because you know, when we use the term epidemic, uh, if you're using that term uh, precisely, what you're describing is an increase in the prevalence of a disease over a short period of time. When you start to see uh, large numbers of people becoming infected, for example, with a disease, 
over a short period of time, then you say that that would be an, an epidemic. What I believe is that when the prescribing begins to go up rapidly, that's when the incidence rate, the number of people becoming newly addicted to opioids starts rising along with the increase in, in prescribing. And there had been a pretty steady increase in opioid prescribing from the mid-80s till around the mid-90s, um, where the incidence of, of opioid addiction was probably increasing because the prescribing was going up. But it's really in the around 96 that the prescribing takes off at an exponential rate. And that's when it's likely that the rate of new cases of opioid addiction began to go up rapidly. And you attribute that explosion of opioid prescribing to false promotion that opioids have been underprescribed and in fact need to be prescribed uh, to a greater span of patients with a broader spectrum of pain complaints? Yes, it was a multifaceted, brilliant marketing campaign that was disguised as education or disguised as advocacy for improving care, where the medical community began hearing from every direction that patients are suffering needlessly because we don't prescribe enough opioids. I really do think that the medical community would have been much less gullible if the messages had only been coming to us from drug reps who visit us in, in our offices and encourage us to prescribe their company's product. If it was just the drug reps, I don't think we would have seen uh, a massive increase in, in prescribing and this remarkable change in, in medical practice. Instead though, it was key opinion leaders, physicians eminent in the field of, of pain medicine who were promoting these messages it was professional societies like the American Academy of Pain Medicine and the American Pain Society, front groups uh, that uh, appeared as if they were grassroots organizations of pain patients, when in reality, they were not grassroots. They were astroturf organizations artificially created by drug companies to, to promote the drug company's agenda, not to advocate for, for patients. We even began hearing the messages that we should be prescribing more aggressively from our hospitals because their accreditation organization, the Joint Commission, was promoting aggressive prescribing and downplaying the risks of opioids. And we even heard these messages from our state medical boards, the same state agencies that are supposed to protect the public from doctors who might be prescribing narcotics too aggressively, those same agencies were hearing from their trade association, the Federation of State Medical Boards, that there's a chilling effect in America, that doctors wanna give their patients lots of opioids, but they're worried they're gonna get into trouble with you, the state medical board. And so you medical boards are part of the problem of untreated pain in America because you're scaring doctors. 
And so the state medical boards, they fell for it and issued new policies that were drafted for them by their trade association and disseminated these policies um, across the country so that doctors now hear from their medical boards that they will not be sanctioned on the basis of the quantities of pills or doses that they're prescribing of opioids, but they will be sanctioned for under-prescribing opioids. How did opioid drug companies so successfully infiltrate and compromise all of the different resources by which ordinary physicians obtain information that they believe to be scientifically demonstrated, authoritative, and helpful to their patients? With their money, um, they were able to purchase influence. They were able to with their money influence the professional societies, the key opinion leaders, the joint commission, state medical boards. Unless we study and understand carefully what happened here and institute appropriate safeguards, it's going to keep happening again and again. And it's certainly happening with other pharmaceutical products. The difference is that with opioids, because they are so highly addictive and, and because they uh, can so easily produce a fatal overdose, um, it's led to a public health catastrophe that's quite visible. But there are certainly other public health harms caused by the undue influence that pharmaceutical companies have on medical practice. The opioid crisis would just be maybe the best example in history of, of what can go wrong when pharmaceutical companies influence medical practice in ways that the evidence does not support. So um, you know, we do have firewalls that are supposed to prevent this, but the firewalls didn't work. We have a process in place that's supposed to limit bias in medical education programs, continuing medical education programs, uh, which are accredited, um, there's a system in place that's supposed to try and prevent this from occurring. That clearly didn't work. We have systems in place to prevent influence in medical journal publications. That didn't work. The Joint Commission to this day still takes money from, from pharmaceutical companies even though they're a quasi-governmental organization, you need their accreditation if you're going to bill Medicare. And if a hospital can't bill Medicare, can't stay in business, Joint Commission is still able to take money from pharmaceutical companies. And so many of the failures that led to this crisis remain unaddressed. The Centers for Disease Control reported that between uh, April of 2020 and April of 2021, approximately 100,000 Americans lost their lives to opioid overdoses. Thinking back to how long you have been treating people with opioid addiction, is our grip on this problem getting better or worse? Is the epidemic getting better or worse? You know, it's a good, good question. I think that there are probably aspects of the problem that are improving, despite the fact that the mortality got worse. So one of the reasons we've failed to respond as a nation to the opioid crisis appropriately 
is because it's been misunderstood and in some cases intentionally misframed by the opioid industry, misframed as a drug abuse problem rather than as an addiction epidemic. Um, But because we haven't appropriately understood that the reason we're experiencing record high levels of opioid overdose deaths across the country, the reason we've experienced a soaring increase in infants born opioid dependent, outbreaks of injection related infectious diseases, impact on the workforce, that the driver behind all of these health and social problems that we're calling the opioid crisis has been an increase in the prevalence, the number of Americans suffering from opioid addiction, which is a preventable and treatable condition. And since we really haven't framed it appropriately or understood it appropriately, we haven't seen the appropriate interventions that would significantly reduce incidence of this disease or in better access to to treatment. Uh, The federal agency, which I think has done the best job of responding to the opioid crisis, has been the CDC. But even the CDC has been focused too much on the deaths. Much of the work uh, that the CDC has done on this issue has come from their injury prevention center, where they look at an opioid overdose as an accidental death. Uh, It's the division that handles car crash deaths uh, or deaths from falls. These were our poisoning deaths. And if you focus too much on the deaths, that's kind of like thinking about the AIDS crisis as an epidemic of PCP pneumonia deaths. Instead of understanding that the PCP pneumonia uh, deaths were occurring in people who were suffering from an infection that was knocking out their immune system. It wasn't an epidemic of PCP pneumonia. It was an epidemic of HIV infection. And ultimately we were able to to treat HIV infection, but these were deaths in people with a preventable treatable condition. And we focused on preventing and treating that condition to respond to the AIDS crisis. We haven't really been doing that uh, in our uh, efforts to tackle the opioid crisis or at least not, not to the extent that we need to. So I do think though that there may be some reasons to be hopeful despite the fact that the mortality has gotten so much worse And I I think there is reason to believe that the number of Americans becoming newly addicted to opioids is decreasing. Um, I I believe that's the case because prescribing has been trending in a more cautious direction. I think there are still too many Americans becoming newly addicted. The incidence, the number of new cases is still too high, but I think it's trending in, in the right direction. What is opioid addiction? What does that mean? I think the best way to understand addiction, I think the best definition of addiction is repeated use of a drug despite negative consequences. If a person has this now behavioral component, the continued use of a drug despite negative consequences, Is there a physiological explanation for that? Or are they just a person of uh, weak will? That's a good question. Yes, there is a physiological explanation. Um, Something that many people believe incorrectly is that for people using 
opioids or for so-called addicts. And, you know, the term addict is stigmatizing. I, I don't like the term, but I don't dislike the term just because it's stigmatizing and reinforces this notion that people who keep using drugs over and over again um, are doing it because they're weak-willed or they're doing it because it feels so so good. Um, the, the problem is that, I believe, is that there really is no such thing as an addict, meaning someone who is taking drugs over and over again uh, because they enjoy it so much and they don't care who they, they hurt. We've seen in various uh, dramatizations about the opioid epidemic, you know, the uh, example of the 35-year-old working person with a very physical job, whether it's in construction or in a factory or in a coal mine, who sustains a workplace injury, has real pain. That pain is long-lasting, very distracting, very depressing. They are prescribed uh, prescription opioids for chronic use. Uh, they then uh, start showing, you know, evidence of, of drug-seeking behavior, they get cut off, and now they are experiencing overwhelming uh, withdrawal symptoms for which now they only have two options, which are heroin or somehow get into treatment. Does it really happen? Or is Yes, it yes. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating because um, there uh, are many who've been claiming for years now uh, that that's a myth, that the idea that that the harms have been limited to drug abusers, that that uh, the subset of our population who are drug abusers or addicts, they're the ones who are getting into, they're seeking out OxyContin or, or fentanyl patches and, and dying of overdoses on it, and that the media has got it wrong in, in discussing stories about people who, who wound up harmed through medical use. And these stories are not a myth. Talk to your friends, family, neighbors. You will hear stories of people who became addicted to opioids uh, through medical treatment and may have ultimately lost their lives to a heroin overdose after having become iatrogenically addicted to opioids. One of the journalists who's pushed the, this message, and in 2004, she wrote an article in Slate magazine, The Myth of the OxyContin Addict, in which she um, actually worked with Purdue Pharma to, in writing that story and, and made the case that all of the these stories of people getting into trouble with OxyContin, that these are people who were already longstanding drug abusers and that pain patients don't get into trouble. And uh, that the author of that slate piece, Maya Solovitz, has just now become a, an editorial writer um, for New York Times. Uh, she's, she's prolific and keeps pushing that message. Um, but it is not at all a myth. Uh, I've treated many patients pay, uh, who became addicted through medical treatment, patients who never even smoked a cigarette, uh, and their lives who wound up ultimately becoming opioid addicted through medical treatment. This helps get the federal government out of the way of the states that are looking to pursue additional prescribing policies that are the right local response to these dangerous drugs. By reducing the number of extra pills in circulation, we can take tangible steps toward fighting back against this crisis. Dr. Kolodny, one of the natural questions in understanding the 
origins and dimensions of the opioid epidemic is where was the FDA on this, that, and the other? And we could do five episodes about that. But I just want to focus on this issue that you raised about the FDA sent warning letters to certain manufacturers that their promotions were false and misleading. And I want to describe a scenario that I think shows the significant limitations of the FDA to regulate promotion by opioid manufacturers, even if they otherwise did everything right. And it's this, a sales representative goes into doctors and dentists and podiatrists office all day long, every day, that's their job to promote their drugs. And when they're there, they have conversations with that healthcare provider and their staff about why they should prescribe this drug to their patients. How's the FDA ever going to know what those communications are about? They're not in the room. Uh, The FDA wouldn't know. What we know from looking at the documentation that sales reps visiting doctor's offices kept uh, is that they were telling doctors things that the FDA certainly would not have permitted. A good example would be the promotion of Duragesic, the fentanyl patch by sales reps working for Johnson & Johnson. So we know from the state of Oklahoma uh, where the call notes, the documentation left by, by sales reps became public uh, because they were used in the uh, courtroom. Uh, We know from those call notes, and we have every reason to believe that the call notes would be similar across the country, uh, we know that sales reps were telling doctors that the fentanyl patch had a low abuse potential. Uh, And one of the ways in which they tried to convince doctors that there was a low abuse potential was to show them this data that was misleading uh, from an organization called Dawn. And so Time and time again, you'd see documentation showed Dr. the Dawn data to explain less abuse potential. Ultimately, when Johnson Johnson was caught having disseminated the Dawn data to make a uh, low abuse potential claim in a forum outside of these visits, that's when the FDA found out about it, sent them a letter that they had violated the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act required Johnson & Johnson to actually take actions to notify doctors that they had been misinforming them. And, um, but that went on for several years before the FDA knew about it because they were making those claims in some far outside of these doctor visits. You have published among many things in relation to the opioid epidemic, uh, a survey that you and your other Uh, colleagues conducted with respect to a thousand physicians across the country uh, who prescribed opioids in terms of what do they understand, not understand, what do they believe, not believe about opioids. Dr. Kolodny, in 2014, the opioid epidemic had already been raging for many years. And one of the findings in your survey was that one in four physicians were unconcerned about the prospect of diversion of the opioids they were prescribing to patients. What is diversion and why was that a significant enough finding for you to want to report? One of the problems we've had with addressing the opioid crisis is that even as the opioid crisis grew worse year after year, and even 
as doctors who, like everybody, are, are hearing about the problem in the media um, and may begin to recognize that we've got a serious problem with opioids, their thinking in many cases was that the opioid crisis had nothing to do with them or their patients. That many doctors to this day believe that the opioid crisis is about the bad apples. It's about the doctors who may be running pill mills, who are prescribing very aggressively um, or selling prescriptions, um, and you know, they're the problem, or the, the so-called drug abusers who pretend to be patients, uh, who complain, who pretend to have pain so that they can get prescriptions, they're the problem. But with regard to me and my patients, the opioid crisis has nothing to do with us. When in reality, uh, all along the bigger part of the problem have been the well-meaning but badly misinformed doctors and dentists who've been prescribing too aggressively uh, because they, they were um, buying these messages that, that we need to prescribe more more opioids. The well-intended doctors were causing addiction in their patients or in their patients' family members by prescribing too aggressively. Diversion of their prescriptions were, was a serious problem. Given the pervasiveness of the opioid epidemic, some of our listeners may be suffering from opioid addiction or someone close to them is. What can be done about that? Who should they call? What do they do? It's really important to understand that this is a treatable condition. It's not a curable condition. Uh, it's not a condition for which we have amazing treatments like an antibiotic that can knock out an infection and you're done with it. Um, but we have good treatments that can dramatically reduce the risk of an overdose death and improve quality of life. I'm mainly talking about a treatment with medication called buprenorphine, which is our first line treatment. And I kind of wish it wasn't true that, uh, that the answer to an epidemic of opioid addiction is that we're going to have to keep giving opioids to many people, but, but it is true. And buprenorphine is a much safer opioid, uh, much less likely to result in overdose. And when patients who are opioid addicted take it, um, they generally feel well and can function well, we don't have adequate access to that uh, medicine. There aren't enough clinicians out there who will, who prescribe it and will take your insurance. You, often people have to pay out of their own pocket to, to access that uh, treatment. And there are many people who are under the impression that, that, that it's just substituting one drug for another and so that it's not really treatment and that the only way to really be in recovery is to be off of all uh, off of uh, not on any medicine. And um, so that's un unfortunate. So I, I do think, especially with uh, overdose deaths at this extremely high level, um, about the only way we're going to be able to bring deaths down in the short run will be to see that more people get access to effective treatment. That's going to help us even more than making naloxone available, which is another important strategy. As much harm as has been done by the opioid epidemic, and as much sorrow and danger as is created by increases in opioid addiction, 
one of the reasons that this is not hopeless is because of your pioneering work in uh, speaking truth to power about the existence of an opioid epidemic, changes in opioid prescribing, re-education of physicians, re-education of regulators. And I know that for you, that is work that goes on. You will stay on the front lines doing that work. And I cannot thank you enough on behalf of the producers of this show and our listening audience for the work you do and for your infinite patience with me today and the time you've expended. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for what you shared with us today. Thank, thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you for the kind words and thank you for the work that you've been doing. Um, as someone who has been in this fight for a while, uh, it wasn't until attorneys began to take on this industry that public health advocates had been up against that we really started to see some some serious changes in, in, in the behavior of these companies. And so that's made a huge difference already. Um, but the work that you're doing is resulting in much needed funds to, to tackle this mess. You're making the companies who caused this problem pay to clean it up. And for that, I can't thank you enough. Uh, your sentiment is so much appreciated. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Council, we're gonna tell the Norco story, an absolutely true history that you probably have never heard before. And after that, we're going to explore what are the legal dimensions of these historical facts, especially as they continue to affect people today.